Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Who's in and who's out of the kingdom of God? In today's teaching, Pastor Nate posits that faith is not just a feeling or a work, but rather it is submission to the authority of King Jesus. We're going to be continuing to look at the Gospel of Matthew today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, which if you don't have a Bible, there's those pew Bibles seated around you or maybe in the little chair slot in front of you. We're going to be on page, I think it's page 813. That's where we're going to be today. And if you don't have a Bible or you would like to take that Bible, feel free to keep that Bible. As you may recall that I mentioned last week, we're diving back into our series on Matthew. We'd been on it a while, but now we're seeing Matthew beginning to share with us about the healings of Jesus. And as we looked at last week, Jesus doesn't just heal people because he's kind. That is true. But often we think, oh, Jesus was kind. He healed people. No, that is true. But Jesus is doing very specific things with healing. He's showing how the kingdom is built, who it's built with, who it's built for, how it's going to be built, why it's going to be built. And as we saw with the leper last week, that the kingdom of God is built on the unlikely. It's built on those who normally wouldn't be invited in. Jesus doesn't build his kingdom with power and dominance, but with intimacy, with love, with not just restoring someone physically or even spiritually, but Jesus restored the leper socially. He brought him back in. That's, remember, that's why he had him go to the priest, so that he would be restored back into the community. So Matthew's beginning to show us these glimpses, these snapshots of what life in the kingdom is built on and who it's built for. But what's just so interesting is that in our American world, who do you build with? Who are builders? They're the strong. They're the standout ones. They're the people who look like they basically have their act together. Who are the people Jesus picks? He picks the outcasts. He picks the ones with no friends. He picks the ones that people don't want to be around. He picks the quitters and the losers. Because his kingdom is not built on performance. His kingdom is built on this otherworldly thing called grace. And that continues today when we see Jesus heal a very unlikely person, the servant of a Roman centurion. So we read this scripture today. There's a couple of things that we're going to need to examine, a couple of background things that we're going to want to look at. But what I want you to be thinking about, and you can kind of put this in your brain and begin to chew on this, who do you think gets into the kingdom? Who do you think the kingdom is for? Why do you think you're in the kingdom? All right, well, we're going to hear the scripture read. I'm going to invite Louis up. He's going to read the scripture for us. This is Matthew 8. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 13. Thanks, Louis. Thank you, guys. Um, so our reading's from Matthew 8, verse 5 to 13. Okay. So when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. 
For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Awesome. Thank you. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask for your help as we look at this passage, as we look to you, the God of the text of Scripture. God, we ask that you would open our minds to understand things that you are trying to say to us your people here at Redemption Church. I ask for your help as well, God. Thank you for how you've been faithful to meet me this week. We look forward to seeing and learning what you want to say to us today, God. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew, remember, Matthew's the one writing this account. We call these gospels, an account of the life of Jesus. There's four of them. We're looking at one of them, Matthew, written by Matthew, one of the followers of Jesus. He's showing us that Jesus has come as someone who wants to restore, who wants to build back up, and who wants to show us what God the Father is like and what his kingdom is like. And what's interesting is that this centurion knew some form of that. We don't know what he knew about Jesus, but he knew that Jesus had authority. He knew that Jesus is someone that not only could I go to and could heal my servant, but maybe he'd even be willing to. So there's kind of a lot going on here. We need to look at a little bit of the context to really understand what was going on with Rome, what was going on with Capernaum. So let's do what I want to call a dive into first century Capernaum. I think we've got a map up there of where Capernaum is located, in case you don't know. It's a city north of Galilee. It was a fishing village where Jesus was at. It was located along a major trade route, so it would have been a lot of people coming, going through there. It would have been been some good commerce there. It was a city of Roman occupation. The Romans had fully taken over and were ruling in that area. And out of Capernaum is Jesus' house. That's where he lived. He spent a lot of time there. So I feel like it's helpful if we're going to be in Matthew for the next decades. Joke, kind of. We need to know about Capernaum. We need to know about this place that Jesus was going to call home. Because in this city, you can see where it was, there's a picture of it, it's located right there on the water. They actually have ruins of a, I don't have a picture of this, but it was pretty cool. They have ruins of like a third century synagogue, which potentially was where Jesus had actually been. They have old ruins of churches where they think they might have located different houses that possibly Jesus could have even taught in. It's pretty cool if you want to look up pictures of Capernaum later. Um, But in this city lived a very specific Roman centurion. We're going to talk about the Romans in a second, but this centurion had a servant, someone who he would have worked with really closely, who was so sick that he was actually paralyzed. So if you look at the text, it says he was so sick that he was laying there. And if you look at some of the original, like the Greek wording going on there, 
the commentators say that he wasn't just sick. His sickness was so bad, he was physically unable to move off of the floor. So this guy was paralyzed. It was so bad that this centurion was thinking, who can I get to help? So he seeks out a Jew. I don't know if you know anything about the racial issues going on with Romans and Jews back in the day, but I'm just going to say the racial tensions that we have here in America, which have been highlighted in recent years, which are a thing going on, don't want to minimize that, but we can't touch what was going on in the first century. Our racial tensions that we have here are nothing like the racial tensions that they had going on in the first century. So it would be unhelpful to compare. But let's just think for a minute about the racial tension that was going on. Let's talk about the Jews for a second. What were the Jewish people like? They were a nationalistic people focused on their God, his kingdom, a high value on the priority of the family, a high value on morally following God, a high value on not being stained by people outside of the community. They believed that their Messiah was going to come in and kick Rome's butt. They believed that they were his special people and that if we can just hang on tight, he's going to come and save us really, really soon. So don't mess with Rome because they're the pagans. They're the foreigners. Let's try to figure out how to kick them out of our land. The Jews were an expectant, a longing, and a prophetic people. People holding on, they'd been suffering for years outside of their land, back in their land, outside of their land, back in their land, and now the prophets had talked about the Messiah's gotta come soon. So as you even read in the Gospels, there were people literally like, is this the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? So they were like waiting. So that's the Jews. Who are the Romans? The Romans, again, if you, if you don't know this, the Romans were the global superpower of the day. The Romans were focused on all people being submitted to Rome. You can have your puny God of the Bible if you want, as long as you're also submitted to Caesar, who is God. They focused on dominion. They believed that their king Caesar was the real ruler over all people. It would have been very normal to hear people say, Caesar is Lord, which is why it's interesting that the New Testament often says, who is Lord? Jesus is Lord. So as the church said that, that was a direct counter to what Romans would have been saying in that day. Caesar's armies, Rome's armies, they did not lose. Their kingdom was expanding. Their roads were going everywhere. His soldiers were loyal, his citizens were happy, and his enemies were not just killed, but often crucified, tortured, raped, made to show that any defiance to this king would not just be eliminated, but painfully eliminated. We have the word gospel that means good news, but the Romans would have been preaching the good news of King Caesar, who was making all things now into his kingdom. So that's the Romans. And so now, put yourself in a world where for almost a whole generation now, the Jews had taken over, the, the Romans had taken over the Jews' land. How do you think Jews and Romans viewed each other? Well, the Jews hated the Romans and wanted to revolt. 
They viewed the Romans as pagans. And the Romans would have looked at the Jews and thought, you puny people with your invisible God that nobody even sees, just get with the program. So in light of that, we now see a Roman officer approaching a Jewish rabbi and wanting to come under and submit to him. Roman soldier, this Roman officer, a man with power, a man who would have been known in that town. He would have had at least 80 to 100 men under his command. He would have been known and feared in Capernaum. He had authority to let people live or die. He could speak, and the commentators all talked about this, like this transfer of authority. If a centurion spoke, it was to be obeyed as if it was the emperor himself speaking. And this man comes to Jesus and says, you actually have the real authority. The pagan Roman comes to the Jewish rabbi because even 2,000 years ago, game recognizes game. I think I have authority, but that guy actually has it. I think I have power, but game recognizes game. That guy has the real power. If you've got power or authority, will you recognize other power or authority? But in this case, the centurion knew that Jesus had a different kind of authority, a different kind of power. And that's what we're going to see, that Jesus' authority here is not just about authority and power to heal, which he does, but Jesus has power and authority to expand and to show who is in and out of the kingdom. Jesus has power and authority to show who's in and who's out, which seems unexpected, right? I mean, this is a passage about healing, right? So why are we talking now about who's in and who's out? Well, Jesus' response, this is kind of the second thing we're going to look at. Jesus' response shows who's in and who's out. When this centur- look in the text. When the centurion first approaches Jesus, Jesus responds and says, I'm willing to come heal. And some people ask, is that a question? Like, am I willing to come? Will I come? Or is Jesus making a statement of, I will come? Regardless, Jesus is showing he is willing to come into this pagan ruler's house, into this centurion's house. But the man says, you have authority, so just say the word. But look at how Jesus responds to the guy. Look at the text. Look at verse 10. How does Jesus respond to this man saying, you have authority, I too have authority, say come and they come, say go and they go. Jesus turns away from this guy and says to the crowd, this guy gets it. What? He says, this guy knows not just about what faith is, but he is proof that the kingdom of God is for the unlikely. It's not just for people who think they're in, it's for the unlikely people. Let me read again verses 10 through 12. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown to the outer darkness. Jesus is saying, Israel, the people that he had come for, those listening to him were the sons of the kingdom. 
They were the ones who had literally been given God's law. They had been given the scriptures. They had the prophets. They had the Exodus as their story that they lived in. They're the ones who were the sons of the kingdom. They were the people who were supposed to carry the mission of God to all of the people who were far from God. But they are the very people who said, we're not going to submit to Jesus though. Does it strike you as odd? Do you, do you see that disconnect here? This guy is receiving this request to heal, and then Jesus completely pivots and starts talking about the sons of the king. Do you catch that disconnect? It seems like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Jesus starts indicting Israel when receiving this request to heal someone. So what's going on here? We'll look at verse 11. Jesus says, many will come from the east and west and recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's going on there? Well, Jesus is alluding to the day when God's kingdom is fully here, which often is used with imagery of this big feast, this big celebration. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the guys the Jewish people traced not just their ancestry from, but to say that you were with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob meant you were the in crowd. It meant you knew where the real party was going to be at. So to say, I'm the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you were basically signaling to everybody, that's, that's where I'm going. That's who I'm hanging with. That was to say, you were with the in crowd. And the Jewish people prided themselves that they could trace their ancestry to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jesus is showing them that these were the people who thought that they were in, but what's going to happen to the sons of the kingdom? They're going to be cast out. So Jesus is showing us, and well, let me just pause. Look at the look at verse eleven. I want you to grab a pen if you have a pen. If you're one of those people who writes, I want you to circle that phrase: the many. The many. We have this contrast going on between sons of the kingdom and the many. There's the people who think they most definitely will be in, and then there is the many. Jesus here is alluding to some pretty major things going on in the Old Testament. That's the thing. We can just read the scripture and have no idea of all the context happening underneath it. The many who come from east and west. There's some scriptures um, that I think I have on a slide specifically Psalm 107, Zechariah 8, Isaiah 43, that reference east and west. So when Jesus says, the many will come from east and west, a lot of people thought, oh, well, yeah, that's the exiles, right? That's the other sons of the kingdom. That's people coming who had been taken out of the land, right? It's more of the Jewish people, more of the true sons of the kingdom. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are our forefathers. We're all going to come back together, right, for this big party. Well, that is true, the gathering of God's people, the exile, is one illusion that Jesus is making, but Jesus is expanding that imagery to show that the gathering from east and west is not just the Jewish people coming back together. The exiles coming back in represents the ends of the earth being brought to Jesus. 
This is talking about the story of God. This is the consummation of all things. When we talk about the story symbols in the final one, new creation, when heaven and earth come together and all of God's people from east, west, north, south are brought together, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Not just exiles coming back together, but all of God's people coming back together. We sang that song, every tribe and tongue, every people and language, you've made us a kingdom of priests of God to dwell. You know that song we were just singing about? That's what this is. This is the many. So who are the many? The many coming together are the men and women like this Roman. The many coming together are the men and women like the leper last week. The true sons of the kingdom are the unlikely. And again, so we're still, if you're feeling like, Nate, where the heck are you going with this? Thank you. We're still in that tension of, wait a minute, request to heal talking about the many coming in. Okay, we still need to connect this back together. But I want us to camp on this for a second and think about who are, not just who are the many, but why is Jesus making this, uh, in one sense it seems like a disconnect, but why is he doing that? I want us to read this in a different translation, and we're going to begin to connect some dots here. Um, Has anyone ever heard of Eugene Peterson? He's amazing New Testament scholar, writer, faithful pastor. He just died a couple years ago, but he wrote a translation of the Bible called The Message. In one sense, it's kind of a paraphrase. It's not a true interpretation of the scripture, but he basically takes the Bible and puts it in language that modern men and women and children can understand. So I want us to read his take on this passage. So when Jesus hears a centurion, that part happens. Then it says, taken aback, Jesus said, I've yet to come across this kind of simple trust in Israel, the very people who are supposed to know all about God and how he works. This man is the vanguard, meeting the first leading others of many outsiders who will soon be coming from all directions, streaming in from the east, pouring in from the west, sitting down at God's kingdom banquet along with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then those who, quote, grew up in the faith but had no faith will find themselves out in the cold, outsiders to grace, and wondering what happened. The great ingathering, the many coming together, is going to happen because the ones for whom Jesus came rejected him. The ones who were God's sons, they were supposed to be the sons of the kingdom, rejected Jesus. And as we already talked about earlier today with our kids' catechism, this is actually an allusion to hell. Not just an allusion, this is a direct reference to hell. That the sons of the kingdom, those who grew up in the faith, who assumed that they were the in crowd, who assumed our God is for us, they're the ones who are going to be cast out. They're the ones who are going to suffer an eternal separation. They're the ones who will be in hell. We often think of hell as this place where poor sinners go who suffer unfairly because a mean old God has rejected them. Friends, as we already talked about earlier, hell is a place for all people who say, not your will, but my will. Hell is not just a place for the Hitlers or the sexually abusive or the sexually immoral. Hell is full of people who are really moral. Hell is full of people who are really upright. Hell is full of a lot of rule followers. Hell is full of upright people 
who use their own morality and goodness as a bargaining chip to prove themselves to God or to other people. Hell is full of people who ultimately had faith in themselves and not in Jesus. Many people who think of themselves as the hard workers, as the good or upright people, will find themselves in hell and know, I was just trusting in myself the whole time. So do you, do you see the shift of what's happening? Jesus is talking about this great wedding feast. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the sons of the kingdom, the true sons of the kingdom being brought in, the many coming into the true feast. But wait, he's talking about the servant though, right? He's talking about the centurion's servant. So Jesus is actually showing us this is actually who gets in the kingdom. This is actually who the kingdom is for. I received this healing from the outsider, from the unlikely, from the one that the Jewish people would have rejected. And Jesus is saying, wait, wait, wait. The real sons of the kingdom is that guy. The real sons of the kingdom is not all the people who pride themselves on the morality. The real sons of the kingdom are the ones who say, I need to come under the authority of Jesus. Jesus is showing us with this, and again, we're going to get, he does heal the guy. He does heal the centurion's servant. But what is he doing in that? He's showing us who's in and who's out. And this is really, really important for us to understand, church. Because no one thinks, oh, yeah, I'm a son of the kingdom who's going to get kicked out. All of us think that we're in the kingdom, don't we? None of us is actively thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm probably that guy, but it's good. it'll be okay. We all assume, if you are someone who would claim Jesus as your Lord, we all are assuming that we're true repentant people. But do you know, do you know who else assumed that they were true repentant people? The sons of the kingdom who were kicked out. So how do we discern if we are like those sons of the kingdom? Let me ask you a question for you to chew on. On what basis do you think you have part in Jesus' kingdom? On what basis? I want to ask you some questions. Is it because you're really moral? Is it because you're a really godly person? Like, I know I'm in the kingdom. Because look how good I am. Obviously, God would want me on his team. And obviously, you're not going to consciously think that. But you're often going to notice that when you see who you think is unlikely. The people that you consider unlikely are the people that probably are going to be in the kingdom. And now you know how you're priding yourself because you're like, oh, those people? I'm not like those people. Is it because you got baptized? And so now, in your mind, you're like, oh, I got baptized, so I'm secure now, right? I got baptized when I was 10, so I'm in the kingdom now, right? Is it because you made a radical change in life? You had some moment that really shook you and you made this huge change. Is that why you're in the kingdom? Is that why you would say, I have confidence I'm in the kingdom because look at this big change I made. Is it because you cleaned up your act? For some of us, if you grew up in the church like me, do you consider yourself in the kingdom because you prayed a prayer? Parents, are you considering your kids to be in the kingdom because they pray to prayer? I'm not minimizing the praying the prayer. I'm saying, is that really the ground of your confidence that you pray to prayer? Like, oh, I, I had this moment of surrender, so I must be in now, right? I've lived the rest of my life however I want, but I pray to prayer. 
Again, for us in the South, this is really critical for us to be thinking about. Is it because you do all the disciplines? Is it because you read your Bible every day? Is it because you're really generous with your money or you love the poor? Is it because you're not sleeping around and getting drunk and stuff like that? On what basis do you, would you say, I know I'm in the kingdom? As a pastor, part of my job is saying hard things. So as a pastor, I want to say, not because I have names in mind, but I am afraid that some of us here could be like those sons of the kingdom. Again, I'm not thinking of specific people. Like, oh, no, it's Nate calling me out. No, I'm saying, are you a son of the kingdom? A true son or like the sons who will get thrown out? Are you priding yourself on your morality? On your perceived goodness? So how do we determine? You're like, great, thanks, Nate. How do we determine if we're actually trusting in Jesus or trusting in our own perceived morality? Well, at the core of this passage is the question of authority. The core of this passage is this centurion who says, I'm willing to come under Jesus' authority. The real center of this passage, which is about healing, is actually about coming under the lordship of Jesus. So friends, that's how you know if you're in the kingdom or not. Am I one who is saying, I want Jesus as Lord over all of my life? Is Jesus' lordship actually what gets me into the kingdom? So again, we're kind of coming full circle back to the centurion now, back to this question of authority and submission because this is kind of point three, the essence of faith in Jesus is not some spiritual metaphysical, oh, I have faith, I float on the clouds, I, I read my Bible and float and have some kind of ethereal faith. No, at the end of the day, faith is about authority and submission, that is what faith is about. Faith, again, it's one of those spiritual terms that people say, oh, he's like, so many people at my gym know I'm a pastor and they're like, oh, you're a man of faith. Like, what does that even mean? You have faith too. You are putting your life and submitting your life to some other kind of authority. We all have faith. So for those of you who assume that you are a follower of Jesus, is it because you have this list of really good things you've done or is it because you're saying, Jesus, I wanna submit all of my life to you? And for those of you who do not claim to follow Jesus, you would not say that you are, I would ask you to look at this Roman centurion. Consider the essence of faith, which is not some mystical belief in some divine God who's out there, but faith is a question of authority and submission. Again, look at verse 8 through 10. The centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, my servant will be healed, for I too am a man under authority. So what does it mean to be under the authority of Jesus? What does it mean to submit your life to Jesus? It means you put yourself under the, the yoke of Jesus. You say, Jesus, I want to take on what you are calling me to take on. Jesus, I want to bring my life into submission to what you're calling me to. Jesus, I want to bring my life into submission to your good news. Jesus, I want to bring my life into submission to you and life with your people. 
So what does it mean to have faith in Jesus and his authority? Again, faith is not some general religious attitude. Faith is not just some spiritual quality. Faith is the question of, does Jesus have the right to have authority that I can submit my life to? Scott always makes fun of me for saying this, and whatever, he's not here, I'm going to say this. Our good friend N.T. Wright says this to us today. The challenge for today's Christian is to ask, what does it mean to recognize and submit to the authority of Jesus himself? What does it mean to call him Lord and live by that? There is nothing in the New Testament to suggest that faith is a general awareness of a supernatural dimension or a general trust in the goodness of some distant divinity so that some arrive through Jesus, others through some different route. Faith in Christian terms means believing precisely that the living God has entrusted his authority to Jesus himself, who is now exercising it for the salvation of the world. Jesus is using his authority to set in motion a great celebration, and he invites us all to share in it. With this centurion, Jesus saw the faith of a man who was an outsider, who didn't read his Bible, he didn't go to church. He did not love people well. He was not a disciple trying to make disciples. But Jesus saw in this man a willingness, desire to submit to the authority of Jesus. And again, I'm not, don't hear me minimizing those things, going to church, reading your Bible. I'm saying that Jesus knew this guy hasn't done any of that. This guy is surely coming to me because he wants to submit to me. And his servant was healed. His servant was healed because Jesus said the word, because Jesus does have the authority to heal, but Jesus also has the authority to show who's in and who's out. So if you would be someone today who may be a skeptical of Jesus, who's maybe wondering if you really can submit your life to him, if you can really bring your allegiance and faith and loyalty to him, I would just ask you to consider, is Jesus worth submitting your life to is Jesus worth submitting your life to? And for those of you who do follow Jesus, what does submission mean to you? Does it mean that you do Christian practices or that you say, Jesus, I want to come under your authority in all of my life? So in your life, as we go to close now, Jana, if you actually want to come up, we're gonna close in just a second. In your life, what is Jesus calling you to, to submit to him in? Where in your life right now are you not living in submission to Jesus? Where are you not living in submission to Jesus as he calls you to live amongst your family? Where are you not living in submission to Jesus as it relates to loving people and caring for people and giving of your own time, talents, and treasures? Where are you not living in submission to Jesus as it relates to living with his people, as it relates to loving your wife or loving your husband or being faithful to raise your kids or repenting for things that you're hiding? Where do you live for your own comfort and pleasure rather than in submission to Jesus? I think today the Spirit is calling, definitely to me, hopefully to some of you, maybe some of you specifically, to say, here's one area of your life where you're not living in submission to my authority. Where in your life today would you say, I need to come to Jesus because I need healing? Maybe physical healing, maybe spiritual healing, maybe social healing. 
if you're feeling on the outcast, if you're feeling that there's emotional, relational, social issues that you are wrestling with, what you need to ask Jesus for like the centurion. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.